Welcome back to my TT Wine Explorer podcast. I'm Tanya Tomaszewska. Today's episode is about building a brand. Specifically, it's about building the brand of a new winery from its inception. Of course, a winery is about its wine and its grapes and its place. But it's also about story. The story and experience which that winery is offering to consumers. I can't think of a better person to speak with about brand building than Ian McDonald. Based in British Columbia's Okanagan Valley, Ian was the founder of Liquidity Wines, which opened in about 2012. For those who don't know it, Liquidity makes premium wines and is located in a wine subregion called Okanagan Falls. It's a spectacular property which integrates jaw-dropping vineyard vistas and lake views, has a sleek tasting room, modern bistro, and a variety of artworks installed around the property. Now, before opening Liquidity, Ian had no experience in the wine industry whatsoever, as far as I'm aware, but he had a lot of experience in marketing and building extremely successful brands in other sectors. Branding is about focusing on the consumer, and Ian really knows how to do that well. I vividly recall the first time I met Ian, I was at a winery tasting event here in Vancouver, the kind of event where a number of wineries set up tables to which us tasters can walk up for some pours and a chat. Ian was representing Liquidity at his table. Down to earth and personable, he poured samples and explained the liquidity story to me in a really relaxed way. We had a lot of laughs. And I saw this scene repeated numerous, numerous times after that when I went to visit the liquidity property. Ian in the tasting room, working amongst the team which he had assembled, pouring one at the tasting bar and chatting with visitors, asking where they'd come from, what they'd like to taste. And this is what it's all about, connection and story. I hope that you enjoy my discussion with Ian McDonald today. Let's fly. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the TT Wine Explorer podcast. So thank you so much for joining us, my guest today. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So in today's episode, I'd like to use Liquidity Wines as a case study for brand building in the winery space. And not just any brand, a brand which makes premium wines and offers a world-class property for wine lovers and everyday consumers to visit, a wine travel destination. But before we get into the story about how liquidity came into being and your vision which built it, I thought we could chat a little bit about your background in marketing and brand building and how this all started for you. And before we get into that, I'm just going to make a note to the audience to refer them to a podcast called Meet Me in the Kitchen, which is put out by Little Kitchen Academy, um, which an initiative you're also involved in. Um, and a March 15th, 2023 episode has a really lengthy expose on you, I would say, with your discussion about your background. So I'll just refer to the audience to that. Um, but Ian, back to you. So in a you know quick snapshot, can you share a bit about your story in terms of how you developed your expertise in marketing and creating brands? You know, what was your first job? How, how did you learn to do this? Yeah, I, I think that um, any expertise that I have in, in marketing kind of started organically without really knowing what marketing was or having studied it in any way. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that even as a young man at the age of 14, I was already working full-time after school managing the front desk at the local YMCA in my town. And so you're interacting with the public, you're communicating, you're answering questions, signing up people for things, explaining all the different programs that are available to them, um, it, and then handling handling the money and the processing of all that. It, um, I, I think marketing at the end of the day is really about communicating with people. And I think that those early jobs that I had really gave me a bit of a, introduction education about 
how best to interact with people. And so I, I, I ended up kind of having more of a creative spark and a tremendous amount of energy around this whole concept of marketing. And everything I know in marketing, I've just learned from, from being on the job. And it's been a long time and through a lot of companies, a lot of very successful companies that I worked for or companies that I started myself. And always marketing and the brand has been forefront in, in the whole process. So it sounds like a mix of getting out there in the world in real life and into intuition and passion and a combination of all those things and, you know, a, a natural knack, for lack of better words. Um, I know from your after Salomon, you went and had a very successful um, initiative and endeavor and enterprise related to um, Olympics and apparel. Um Maybe if you could just quickly touch on that before we jump into the winery scene, uh, you know, what, what gap did you see in the market? What did you create there in that space for people who don't know? My Olympic involvement started from my days with a company called Sun Ice. It was an apparel company, ski outerwear primarily in the beginning. Um, that was based out of Calgary, Alberta. And they were a fledgling company basically a basement startup kind of a thing. I was leaving Solomon because I wanted to go into other things. They wanted me to move on to VP of sales. And I really loved marketing and I wanted to stay with it. And these people called me that owned it out of Sun Ice and said, we have a ski work company. We want to be successful. We hear you're a marketing and sales and management guy. Can you come and help us? And I was just, I thought about it and said, you know, nothing's ever been done at that point in time. This is a long time ago relative to really the, the doing a lot of marketing with soft goods. You know, it just didn't happen. And it's, it's a big thing today. But you were talking now, this is 1983. Um, jumped in there and applied a lot of things I had learned from hard goods into soft goods. And my gosh, it became a phenomenon. It was just this thing just blew up uh, all across Canada and throughout the United States and was actually starting to trend globally. But part of what happened with that, I, I managed to take the company in as the clothing sponsor of the Games for Calgary 1988 Winter Olympics. And um, that, that's a whole other story. 24 years, 13 consecutive Olympics all over the world, you know, looking after millions of, of, of people and multi, multi millions of uniforms pieces that were put together, um, finally wrapped it up in London 2012 so that I could focus all my energy on liquidity at that point in time. So now we circle back to liquidity. So that's an Olympic, an Olympian effort on your part. Um, wow. So uh, that's a lot. Those are a lot of experiences um, over a number of years over which you developed and created a lot of expertise and a lot of brands. Um, and as you just mentioned, you wrapped your Olympic adventure and jumped into the world of wine. You'd never been involved in the wine industry, I don't think. And then, and then you built a winery. So, so what prompted the start of liquidity? You, how did you think, you know, what prompted that and how, or in which ways did you think your experience and expertise from these earlier initiatives endeavors would, and other sectors could be translated or used effectively in, in the wine industry space? In uh, several of the Olympics that I was involved in, there, was, there were wine sponsors, you know, in Italy 
and in Australia, uh, Greece, um, a lot of the different countries that we're participating in. And so I, I got really familiar with those companies and their products and seeing some of their wine regions uh, because of my Olympic involvement. And it really kind of it, it took a hold on me. And again, this is being, you know, this kind of naive outside perspective on things. Um, and I traveled to New Zealand after the games in Sydney and fell in love with that place. And in those days, land in New Zealand was very cheap, <laughs> not like today. And I kind of saw a couple of spots that I loved and considered making an offer to buy some land and maybe get into the wine business. But then, you know, realized I still had, it was going to be too far from anywhere to run the Olympic business and kind of had shared that story with a lot of my friends and put it in the back of my mind. And then circle around to 2000 and uh, where are we now? 2006, I guess it was um, that uh, a couple of friends of mine that I knew from Canada here had said there was a, a property. They'd been looking at some properties in the Okanagan Valley. And I really wasn't that familiar with the Okanagan Valley and all my travels and wanted to look at buying a winery here. So I looked at a few things and then finally they got some calls back. World started changing in 2007 then finally 2008, you know, the economic mm -hmm. yeah. people. And they said there was this particular property that um, was insolvent. And they said, you know, maybe we should have a look at it. Maybe we should just put a number in an envelope and you hand it into the judge and they open the envelope. And if you got the biggest number, suddenly you're, you're the owner of a, of a vineyard in which it was the case. So we, Saw this vineyard, it looked like a vineyard to us. Didn't realize that the problems that were there um, because we just didn't have that expertise. And we just, for a lark, threw a, a number in an envelope and gave it to the judge. And you won. <laughs> Congratulations, you own this five acres of land in uh, Okanagan Falls. And uh, Shrewdly, my partner said, you know, great, we own this thing. Uh, we're going back to our day jobs. You're the guy that likes design and marketing and branding. So there you go. Have fun. Mm -hmm. So that was it. So I um, went to this piece of property and you've seen it. And really the, uh, the raw material was there. I mean, it, it's a spectacular location. The views are world class. But nobody had ever heard of Okanagan Falls in those days. It was, in fact, it wasn't even on most maps. It wasn't even on any of the tourist maps. You could not find Okanagan Falls if you wanted to. Uh, and so I saw there was a big challenge ahead. The property needed to be completely redeveloped. We had to build all the infrastructure, all the buildings, put in the power, put in the water, put in the septic, put in you know, basically everything. And in, in, in looking at the plan for this thing, um, I said, you know, I, I, we're going to have to do something here that's a little different than what I had mm -hmm. seen in the Okanagan Valley. I had seen certain things in other areas. I'd seen some really unique offerings of some wineries in Australia and New Zealand, various parts of the world. And w without having sort of the research later on kind of verified what my thinking was, but in the day I was going, I think what's missing here is creating a destination. Right, And I thought if we were going to get people to come to Okanagan Falls, liquidity was going to have to become a destination. And everybody thought I was crazy. You know, how do you make a destination out of a piece of land in Okanagan Falls? But um, 
you know, I, I think that in, I'd seen, at least for me, that in a lot of places that I'd really enjoyed, it wasn't so much about just tasting the wines. And I felt that the consumer was looking typically for a lot more than that. And in talking to people looking around, it really became down to the, the destination being, you know, this a spectacular setting, having great food, um, and that really the wine tasting was, was important, but it, it certainly wasn't even in the top three. You know, they, no. they just wanted to get out there and, and enjoy themselves. And the wine, wine pulls people together on that, and it's kind of this fun thing to do together. But, you know, you've been there, Tanya. You can, you can only yeah. taste so much wine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would say, you know, getting to the point, I suppose, about the purpose or the mission or the market gap which you saw in the context of the Okanagan wine scene and what liquidity would offer to that market. I, I think you've, you know, you've spot on to what you identified as the gap and a gap in the market. And like you, I mean, I'd spent a lot of time in Australia. I lived there for many years. I traveled in wine country there and in New Zealand and um, a lot of other world world regions where uh, wine is about an integrated wine experience, like you said. It's it's a de- it's a creating a destination for people to go and unplug and be in the place. And uh, you know, it seems to me that that was <laughs> that was part of the story and the brand of what was to become liquidity. So just on that, you know, everything is in a name. Why did you choose the name liquidity? What were you seeking to convey or evoke with that with that name? Um, well, you know, you, you put a lot of names down and then you try and get a domain or register a name in this day and age and it's, <laughs> you can throw out most of them. Uh, liquidity ended up on the list just because I thought, you know, it's a, it's a really engaging word. You know, if you're in the finance world, you know what liquidity is and you, mm-hmm. you kind of can smile about it because, yeah. you know. <laughs> winery, winery. The banking lawyer in me loves it. <laughs> I mean, wineries aren't known for their liquidity. Uh, <laughs> and if you're a day-to-day person, you know the word. You probably don't use it that often. And therefore, oh, yeah. it's kind of an engaging thing. You know, it's this word that you kind of know about. You may can't, maybe can't describe it 100%, but it gives you a sense of feeling. And so I wanted to combine liquidity with the fact that there's liquid in the bottle, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then also that the view was was featured water, the lakes in the distance. And then I made sure that there were water features around the property. So in a sense, there was that connection of liquid, liquidity, and the whole thing. Um, but somehow people, it was, a, it was a word that people didn't forget. And then mm-hmm. when I looked around in the valley, there was so many wineries that had either creek in it or gully in it or mountain in it or something. And then to me, that's as a marketing thing, that's very confusing for people. You want to find something they can identify, connect with, and remember. If there's no brand retention, no name retention, then, you know, you really haven't served yourself properly or the customer. So um, kudos, because <laughs> I think that translated for many clearly um, with how liquidity became a destination in the Okanagan Valley and for travelers beyond. I know, and I've seen uh, publications with pictures and stories uh, about visiting Canada's wine region and liquidity is uh, front and center in that. So congratulations. 
Um, I thought we'd move on um, beyond, uh, you know, the name and into the product. So, and the team. So let's get into the components of building the business and the brand. Um, So behind every name and there's a product and there's the team. And one of the things which I admire about your approach is your emphasis on team. I remember back going back to some of our earliest conversations, you were stressing the importance of assembling a really top-notch team um, and players around you. And so given that you had no direct previous experience in running a winery or starting a winery, how did you go about doing this in the context of liquidity? What kind of team uh, players or members were you looking for? Um, you know, a lot of founders or, um, owners, uh, they're not always into letting go. (laughs) Um, it's, it can be very hard for people to do that, especially when you're starting. So how was that part of the process for you coming into an area that you hadn't worked in before and, and finding the people to implement this vision with you? I think part of it is, is, um, having to let go of your ego in these situations. You know, for a lot of people, the investment in the wine business is kind of a culmination of ego and passion. You know, you, you did something, you made a lot of money and then, you know, part of your bucket list, let's, let's get a winery. And, and, and certainly we were, our group was part of that, right? We didn't have any background in it. And we made, you know, there's a, a lot of mistakes along the way and a, and a steep learning curve um, to get to where we finally got to. But first and foremost was creating a vision, you know, of what it is that, we wanted to accomplish. And, and my, mine's the creative side, you know, build the program team. So I designed the whole property from the ground up, you know, that it would be this experience every inch of the property as you went through it, as you've been there. I mean, long winding road, water features, all the landscaping, the giant sculpture parks, you know, the buildings and everything else. So you, you come to the building and it's basically like a, uh, a camera lens, you know, you, you start from the front door and it's the first time you see this massive vista as you look all the way through the building and people just like gobsmacked, you know, what is this place? And you walk inside and it's, you've got this farm to table cooking going on in a very, very intimate, cozy setting. You've got um, walls lined with, you know, art everywhere, sculptures. I mean, it really took people out of what they were doing. So that was my job to build and create this whole environment. And part of the vision from that then was we wanted to be, you know, one of the top boutique brands in the country. And I wanted our restaurant to be, despite the fact we're in the middle of nowhere, one of the most recognized and well-known restaurants in the country. And I wanted our wines to be the best representation that could be of our terroir, uh, of our climate in the Okanagan Valley. And to do that, you know, we had to first think about it a lot and talk to a lot of people. And it boiled down to the fact that we should make our focus on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. You know, this cool climate viticulture uh, that would allow us to create the best that these wines can be. The long, hot days and the cool nights because of the northern latitudes and the altitudes and everything else, elevations that we're dealing with would allow you to have that natural acidity, natural flavor locked into the wines. And so we focused on that. And a lot of other places in the Okanagan Valley are all over the map. You know, they're, they're planting everything, making everything. So we've drilled down and focused so that the team knew exactly what it is that we were all about. So then explaining all that, you know, we hired people into the food side of the business or into the viticultural side of the business or into the winemaking side of the business or into the management management operation side of things, but a very, very clear structure and vision of what we want to do. 
And I would say to each one of the managers in each one of these silos of the business, what are the tools that you're going to need to be successful for your part of the business so that as a group, as a team, we can reach these lofty goals? And we, you know, we all got excited about it. And we all thought about it. Now, in the beginning, did we get all the right hires? No, because I think in some cases that people weren't ready for it or didn't believe in what we could do. But as we started to get some traction, we got more and more talent that really wanted mm-hmm. to join the team and be part of it to the point where after about three or four years, we had this A-team put together. Some, some brilliant people, great people with all kinds of background, all kinds of education who just fell in love with liquidity and what we were trying to accomplish. And what happened? Well, you know, we became, you know, it was interesting because when we first opened, you know, we have nobody coming through our gates, you know, coming up to the one because I, even though I'm a marketing guy, I didn't want to advertise. I wanted our growth to be organic. I wanted people to experience it and share it on social media. Talk to their friends about it or want to bring their friends to experience this thing. And, um, and then suddenly, you know, within a couple of years, we had then top 100 restaurants in Canada. And then also my other passion is art. And the place was filled with, with art uh, all the time and great shows that we'd bring in from artists from around the world and exhibits. And we'd have, we'd have lectures with, with famous visiting artists. We had oh, just all kinds of stuff to kind of bring art into the world of wine here and into the experience of the consumer. And I got to tell you, people loved it. You know, the fact well, that you developed walk- a following. So really in a relatively short amount of time from when you opened in what, 2012? Um, really, if you think about it, that was a pretty short amount of time to create that integrated experience and wine and art come together. And, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, liquid, <laughs> liquid art in a bottle. Um, and you really ramp things up from there. You know, how, from a business perspective, how do you decide what, how do you, how does one decide on production levels and ramping up? So I know that generally speaking, wineries would like to have, increase their production so that they can have economies of scale. But, uh, you know, in ter- do, do you monitor production? Do you stage it with as your consumer um, numbers grow and you do it in, in metrics with seeing the patterns? Or is it a, we will build it and they will come? Um, you know, or, or are those neither of those analogies kind of pertinent for this kind of question? Or is it really just basically grow as fast as you can on a production level? Yeah, so... I think everything was contrary about liquidity rather than just try and make as much wine as we could. We really looked at, at forecasting about what we could sell and at what price point. And one of the things I didn't want to do is I didn't want to be, I wanted to be priced, not cheap, but not expensive. Something was competitive and that would work for what we saw as our demographic. And that was meaning that, you know, we, this was again, some years back, but that we wanted to have, you know, that, that bottle of, a wine, be it a Pinot Gris, that could be, you know, twenty dollars or under, just under, and also that we could have some better wines. But also knowing that if we were going to be building reserve wines to do it properly, it was going to take a number of years. And so we knew at some point when 
when the public was ready for it and we were ready for it, we had the quality down, everything else started to win the awards. Then we could start sharing reserve wines and start for those particular wines, charging a little bit, bit more, but I did not focus bucket <laughs> and we can all <laughs> talk about a couple of folks who got into it and started, you know, right out of the shoot with 30,000 cases. That wasn't really what I wanted for liquidity because uh, unlike some precious stuff you have in your cellar, having a warehouse full of wine doesn't always mean it's going to go up in value. And it means you have to start discounting it. And when you start discounting wine, you've just discounted your brand. And so I'm a big believer in never giving away your product because you are, you're hurting your brand. Uh, and so it was always a case of, you know, what can we make? that's going to be really good. And at what volume do we, do we think we can sell uh, within this parameters of the kind of wines that we want to make? And, uh, and that was it. And in fact, what it means, honestly, is you're, you're losing money, you know, yeah. those first couple of years. Uh, it's, you can either lose money by producing a whole bunch of wine and not selling it or selling it at a big discount, or you make the wine that you can sell and therefore you meet the needs of the market and that's it. And you mar- and that will grow as people like it, share it with other people. So it has to be more organic. So we really wanted to sell on, on site through the tasting room and through the restaurant and then through the wine club. Uh, we set we set our goal as, as 75% of all of our wine production would, would come through the facility and 25% would be placed in strategically in the best uh, boutique wine stores and the best restaurants just to kind of have the brand on, on, on the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was how we did. We just, we, you know, again, those first few years, we just made what we knew we could sell, which wasn't a lot like, thousand cases and then 1500 cases and then yeah. 2000 cases. So slow, kind of slow organic growth. And interesting. I mean, the, the t- topic of allocation, we could spend just a year on that, particularly in the last couple of years after, you know, during the COVID lockdown and coming through the pandemic and increases of all kinds of chains of distribution. But I, you know, I know that for all winery businesses that allocation, making decisions as to your channels, um, you know, that is a metric too about your own business and, you know, where, you know, that affects your margins, but also that is part of, of your marketing. Um, just quickly, uh, you touched on pricing. Um, you know, I know that this is intertwined with production or, or, or thank you because the way that you, um, were weaving those together. Um, and maybe this is just another way of looking at a, some, the question I just asked, but on pricing, um, you know, some people have this view of, well, don't tar- don't start too high because you can't ratchet your prices down. And maybe that's separate than, or what you were saying about discounting or don't start too low because that will take away from a premium brand. One is trying to um, evoke, uh, you know, is your approach similar in the winery space? Was that similar to how um, you will have seen pricing for other types of products and other sectors? Or do you really think this is a kind of a term of art here? <laughs> Yeah, it, the wine industry is pretty difficult. You kind of get the spread, you know, from nine ninety five to one hundred and fifty dollars, you know, throughout the Okanagan Valley, or you've got from all over the place. And I think you have to kind of pick your your market where you want to be. And I really thought that our consumer, which you know, it's, it's going to be majority is female, um, educated professionals, and the rest, same thing, men, but, mm-hmm. but women 
or I feel in most cases are largely making these decisions. And um, so you have to have a property that that's, that's the setting, you know, that, that yeah. appeals to everybody and it feels really comfortable. And, you know, if you walk into a room and you can smell the food and see the view and experience the art and it, you just warm up to the whole thing and then try the wines. And in many cases, if our, if a wine didn't meet our standards, we dumped it. A lot of people just sell it. And I just yeah. said, absolutely not. You know, we will never, never sell a wine that doesn't meet our excellent standards. And it can happen. Something goes off and you say, well, we can fix it. We'll just put some stuff in here. I said, no, dump it. You know, we're not selling it. And so we really, really were stringent about the quality of what we were serving. And then making sure that the price points were approachable. And, you know, I think, you know, it's... Um, it's nice to have something at 20 bucks so everybody can have something, you know, out of their wallet nowadays. It's harder to do that. Uh, but this was, you know, going back 10 years ago. And uh, and then we built it built it up. Um, and we, you know, I spent a lot of time in the tasting room and got to sort of see people's reaction to the price points and where you could start to move it from. Uh, you were never going to be able to bring your price down. That was never the case, but we could always bring it up. And so if you were selling out, getting a lot of demand for a product, winning lots of awards and recognition, people were loving it. Then we knew that in the next year we could we could ratchet that price up a couple of dollars and we were still going to be in the zone for people. Um, and even when we got into our our reserve wines, our premium wines, we made sure that they were sensibly priced. You know, that that world's best Chardonnay was was $42. Yeah. You know, Ama- amazing value for that. Having, having had that wine and love that wine, fantastic value. Mm-hmm. And you make a good point because I remember, uh, you know, many times visiting the tasting room or, uh, buying wine online and seeing the range in your portfolio on the pricing. And there really is something for, for everyone on the, on the pricing point. Um, and although you focused on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, there were some other uh, great varieties that you made and were expressed beautifully as well. So, um, back to your point about um, consistency and quality across a portfolio, which is also important. Um, so all of this um, value that you had created in many, many ways and a premium offering and uh, a priceless destination to visit from the consumer, I know not from the owner's point of view, um, you know, you not only developed a following of consumers and journalists and wine lovers, um, but but fellow fellow winery owners. So, you know, the dream scenario for business founders is when the value they've created is coveted by another market player and that player comes and buys your business. Um, and this happened with liquidity. It changed hands and joined the iconic wineries group in early 2020, 2020 I recall, I believe. And for those who are familiar with British Columbia wines, that group includes uh, places like Mission Hill Family Estate, Cedar Creek, Checkmate, Martins Lane. Each of them showcase outstanding visitor locations and experiences, really world-class as well. So they are in great company with liquidity. Um, so now that some time has passed since liquidity has changed hands and, um, you know, you're still in the Okanagan Valley and looking from altitude, if you were to do it again, uh, what, what, or how would you do differently, you know, in terms of cautionary tales for some, you know, newbies looking to dive into the wine industry like you did, or perhaps at some of your, um, fellow winery owner colleagues who are considering expanding, or maybe they need to modify their portfolio offerings or, 
in these really challenging times, just look at sustainability and survival. So I know that's a really broad question, but maybe there are one or two in particular that, uh, that you might want to share. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think my story would be much different than anybody getting into the business today. Um, you know, there's, I was ignorant about the whole wine industry and, um, I brought certain skills to it, but farming wasn't one of them. And you really have to know and understand farming to do well. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand just the metrics of this market of selling alcohol. It's a very, very different business, very challenging business and extremely over-regulated. And so, um, as I say, it's everybody's passionate about wine, you know, and at some point in time they want to get into it. But I would ask any of them to call me before they jump into this. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Um, and I do give people a lot of advice and that yeah. are starting into it. And I try and say, look, if, if you are not, if you are looking at this as a big profit source for you, please, please don't do this. If you're looking at this, something that, that would, you'd have a enjoyment with, have a lot of fun and don't mind burning up millions and millions of dollars in while you're doing it. Great. But, but approach it from the right point of view, because if you're thinking mm-hmm. it's just what's going to pay the rent, um, you know, it's always been a very tight margin business and those margins are even tighter today. Cost of land has gone up, cost of glass has doubled, cost of labor has gone up, um, cost of any, anything, everything in this business has gone up dramatically from when I started in it. And yet you can't really move the price of the wine up any higher than it already is. Mm-hmm. If you look at it now from the uh, surveys from the, liquor board here in BC, the sales of VQA, which is, you know, British Columbia grown and made wines are down substantially year over year. And part of it is that people are drinking a little bit less. And part of it is because our prices have hit the ceiling, you know, of what the average consumer is willing to pay for them. So um, I I, I think you, you want to go into this thing with your eyes wide open and realizing if you just want to have some fun and burn some money and have a good time, it's great. Uh, but so look it, behind the passion at the nuts and bolts and the digging into the granular as to what it really looks like in terms of yeah. the uh, economic metrics of it. And I think the other thing I found too is that people are reluctant sometimes to hire the, the, the right professionals. You really have to have a good quality winemaker. If you think you're going to make this stuff yourself, you're crazy. You need somebody with wonderful experience, like Allison, our winemaker. Yeah, brilliant, you know. And mm-hmm. you've got to have that person on your team. You've got to have somebody who's really solid in viticulture. As you well know, that the weather here will change every year, and you have to be on top of things to to keep your vines healthy and producing. And then a big part of it that people overlook is you've got to know your costing and, and do your fi- do your financials. Mm-hmm. really really behind on that in, in a lot of the wineries here and you can't you can't do that in this day and age with the cost of borrowing and everything that's going on you really have to be studying the numbers um yeah i love the business and i think it's, it's a wonderful thing to be in but um it, it it is it is a big expense um and it's i don't know that it's going to change for a while yet and, and but still you know I'm looking out my window here. 
Yeah, I still live in the Okanagan Valley because this is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And uh, still makes you know, great wines and there's great people, great things to do. It's a wonderful tourism destination. Um, but you know, just be, be careful and, and think, yeah. think it through. You know, you've got to make sure that you've got the right piece of land, that you're growing the right varietals that you know the market is looking for and that will that will work well on your property. Um, you've got to have really good sales force, really good team on the ground as well for yourself. And you've got to create a destination of interest. I, I look around, around where I live here and there's people's idea of a destination is, you know, wine tasting and... If you're lucky, you can buy a slice of pizza. Um, but that's not elevating your brand. It's not elevating the experience of the customer who's coming. So I don't know that they'll recommend it to all their friends or that they'll be coming back every mm-hmm. So it's it's putting that extra effort in. Like, what is it that would really get you excited? What is it you really dream of, really want? Then you need to create and make that experience real for your customers. Make it happen. So maybe one of your future projects is writing Ian's handbook. (laughs) That was just a great one. Um, So you touched on a lot of things that, um, you know, come up in a lot of the discussions I have with people about wine and back to the basics, which you said is you can't have good wine without good grapes and good farming. And in British Columbia, we have a long tradition of agriculture. The winery industry is relatively a newcomer. We have, faced acute weather patterns, climate conditions. Um, It's had horrific and devastating effects for our most recent vintage for a lot of our growers here. Uh, It's challenging times. Um, You know, but despite that, and despite the fact that it seems wine consumption is generally decreasing in the world, um, including in France, there are always going to be wine lovers. There are always going to be people who love to travel in wine country. There are always going to be people who love to make wine. And it's more than just the liquid. So maybe you've already answered my question in your last response, which is, you know, where where do you think things could look like in British Columbia and in our industry in, say, 10 years? Or what's the potential that we could strive for in the context of these challenges. Uh, maybe it's what you what you said, which is creating a destination. Not everyone is going to have thirty five or forty acres. Some will have more. Some will have less. Um, but what what do you think this could look like in ten years for us? Well, um, I wish I had the answer for that. I, I you know I have, some, I have some opinions on it, but I don't know. If I have an answer. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that if, if you know, even small wineries, I think if they focus on one or two things and do it really, really well, that the way the world communicates now through social media and other things, that that if, if, you're, if you're doing a great job of something, it'll get out there. Like, you know, if you've got a little tiny shop and you're making the best cookie anybody's ever tasted, pretty soon everybody's going to find out about that cookie. And the same thing can be with wine. Um, you know, I know some wineries that serve, you know, 22 to 30 different bottles of wine. I mean, I, I don't know how you, it's like a smorgasbord, you know, and I, and I think it's really hard for a customer to get behind that. And so I would suggest that people find something that they can do and, and go narrow and deep, you know, become, become 
recognized for what you're doing. Really focus on that. Really tell that story. Really build that brand around it and build that trust with your consumer because we're having to charge more for our wine here because of all the things I explained earlier. And so you really have to have the customer trust you that you're going to be doing a great job year over year, despite what's going on around here in delivering a a fantastic product for them that they're willing to pay that money for. And that when they come to you, hopefully to visit now and again, that, that you've created a really warm, engaging experience that you've got really talented people, you know, behind the tasting room bar and that they have where as much as possible that these people have access to either an owner or a winemaker or something like that, because that really elevates their experience. They really feel that they've got a contact point with the people that are responsible for the day-to-day operations of this business, which you don't get in many businesses anymore. And if you can, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. really is a unique heartwarming kind of experience that people want. Um, and or look around, like travel, see what's happening in other regions. What are what are the wineries that are in those regions are really blowing things up because of what they're doing? Take those ideas and bring them home. Yeah. And, and so I, yeah. yeah. So consist that's consistent perhaps with general consumer sentiment now and patterns and behaviors, which is less is more. You know, people are apparently drinking less wine. Um some of it's conscious consumerism. Some of it is they're exploring other types of beverages. Sometimes they want to have more quality and less volume. Uh, so maybe that's the way the world is going, no matter what your product, going back to being artisanal and creating a great brand and creating a great product and not trying to make too much of too many things. <laughs> um, so on that note, uh, I think, well, we could go on for hours, I know, but I think we'll leave it there for today, Ian. I'd like to thank you so much for joining uh, today and also for your massive contribution to our industry and to building and creating that space and uh, helping to put our region on the global wine map. And I know although you're no longer uh, with liquidity, I know that you provide support in many ways to people in the industry at least by moral support and that you're involved in a lot of other initiatives. So thank you for your passion um, for our province and for your support of others looking to launch their own businesses. So thanks for joining today. Thanks, Tanya. It's been great. Look Look forward to talking again soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for joining me on my TT Wine Explorer podcast today. Stay tuned for the next episode. You can follow me on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until then, remember to keep tasting, learning, and living.